Hi, and welcome to a small, medium at large podcast. I'm your host, Gail Heisen, bringing you intimate stories that heal. Today, before we invite our guest and I tell you about him, I thought I'd tell you about my exhilarating morning where I took my family on a hot air balloon flight over Sonoma County today. The air and the wind, everything was magnificent. It was like floating in a gentle cloud going across and being hovering above the vineyards and over the airplanes. We, we, there was an airplane that came while we were flying and we had to rise up higher so that the plane could land underneath us. <laughs> so it was a kind of exciting thing. And it seems very appropriate after I read you the bio of our guest today that I happened to be in a hot air balloon before he came on today. So I'm coming from an exhilarated hot air balloon flight to talk to you about our guest today, Nick Cook. Nick is a writer and a storyteller with a background in business consulting and technical journalism. He has written 20 fiction and nonfiction books, including a number of ghost-written Sunday Times bestsellers. His nonfiction, The Hunt for Zero Point, was an Amazon bestseller on both sides of the Atlantic. His new thriller, The Grid, was published by Penguin Random House, yay, in November, 2019. Nick started as a technology reporter for the world-renowned Jane's Defense Weekly in the 1980s, rising to become an award-winning aerospace editor and has maintained a strong interest in technology and technical tre technology trends ever since. After Jane's, he set up Dynamix, working at the top levels of the aerospace and defense industry to find solutions to global grand challenges, such as climate change, renewable energy, pollution and sustainable smart resilient cities. He has since helped storytell for a number of multinational corporations, all of them leaders in the sustainability field. Since 2014, he began researching what consciousness is and how it can be analyzed through paranormal phenomena. Let's welcome Nick Cook to, <laughs> let's welcome Nick Cook to our show. He resides in England with his wife and family, and he's joining us this evening today. Thank you, Nick, for being on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Gail. It's fantastic to be here. It's just wonderful. I, I, I always like to start my shows out with sort of an intimate question, which is, tell us about your childhood, your family, and what your childhood was like, and if any of that was something that stimulated you to go on to the career you chose. Well, I think the short answer to that is definitely, um, and I think about it more and more actually, because in the work that I'm doing at the moment, uh, in the storytelling field and also in the consciousness research field, obviously we get drawn back a lot to our kind of childhood. And I think it's so formative. Um, on, on paper, my childhood was kind of unfortunate. My parents divorced when I was five. So my sister and I actually were sent off to live with, with our grandparents. But my grandparents lived in a very big, old, rambling house um, in the sort of the wilds of the English countryside. So we had this very unique upbringing where we were sort of really <laughs> feral kids, my sister and I. You know, we were five and she, I was five, she was three. But we were just in those days allowed to ramble free. So we spent most of our time outside and there were sort of, uh, there were fields, but there were also some deep dark woods. 
So kind of anyone who knows a little bit about Jungian psychology would, would be interested in this because I think we spent most of our time in the woods. So, uh, <laughs> and that really, I think, fired my imagination. And I still draw on that, even though we lived with uh, our grandparents for three years. So there was a sort of three year period when we lived as, as these feral kids. Uh, but it really did stimulate my imagination. And I'm sure it is one of the reasons why I went on to become a writer. Well, especially the, the forest that has so much spirit and energy in it that as young kids, you would be feeling and sensing the things that were going on there. So that would be a great place to have time to run around. Yeah, of course. And, and we should talk about that, you know, because through you, it is really, it, it is through the conversations that we've had, Gail, that I've become aware of the whole sort of shamanistic creed, um, what that means, um, you know, what, what, what that says about spirit and the way spirit Im imbues um, us and, and, and how that feeds across from nature into us. So it's a very um, productive area of research and an exciting one for me because I'm relatively new to it, as you know. So as a child then, did you stay in England in the countryside with your grandparents or I read something about you traveling to lots of other countries. So can you tell us well, about that experience? <laughs> so, uh, so after that sort of period when we were with my grandparents, then um, I went to live with my father predominantly, but um, my mother, meanwhile, had uh, remarried a diplomat. So that meant that in addition to this sort of very bucolic English upbringing, um, I also traveled exotically to countries like Egypt, you know. So uh, we spent a long time living in Egypt when I was in my teens, uh, two and a half to three years there. And then uh, after that, uh, they were posted to Washington, D.C. So that's kind of my love of America. I'm quarter American, by the way. So oh. I was like, <laughs> it was like going home um, in some senses. And then after that, they got sent to some really far out posts like uh, Somalia. So we were oh. in Somalia for a while and in the Sudan and various other places. I did, a, I did a degree in Arabic and Islamic studies, by the way. So it was very interesting for me to go to places like Egypt and Somalia and Sudan. And, and Somalia, by the way, was, we were there at a time, it was about 1980, 81. So it was before a lot of the troubles or rather it was in a window when there were very few troubles there. So we actually got to, I got to see the country and it was beautiful until it got destroyed, as we know, by war. This is, you know, to me growing up and, and, and taking my own children, the best education you can give is to take your child to be immersed in other cultures, other languages, other foods, and, and to be able to, you know, for us, I didn't move them anywhere. I just took them to Egypt or took them to other places, took them to Mongolia, but I did not have that opportunity as a parent that I lived in the places, so I took them there. But for you to be able to live there and have friends and that had to open up your whole spiritual world right then and there. That's a that's an awakening in itself just to be able to have that kind of a growing up. So I have to say your parents did a good thing when they divorced. 
Well, I, I actually, I often tell that, uh, I, I, I say it to their faces as well. You know, it's in a sense, thank you, because it was pretty clear they couldn't have lived together. And if you take that view, which, you know, I did, then I really, you know, I mean, it was upsetting for them clearly, and it was upsetting, I suppose, in a way for us, but we clearly benefited from it. I would not have had, as you said, that exposure to all of that, those different cultures, those different ways of life, different ways of thinking. And you're right, it is the most mind opening, mind expanding thing I think you can do yes. is to be exposed, particularly in your formative years to those sorts of experiences. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. <laughs> so back then, were you thinking in your mind in the future, I'm gonna be writing 20 books. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of books to have written already and, I, and, 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 and bestsellers. So tell me uh, what, what, what led you into this aerospace and you know, wanting to be a journalist and was this part of, was this, your, you know, was this your dream when you were younger? Was this part of something you thought you'd like to do? Well, it's, it's, it's funny, you know, when you look back at things, you see that they make sense. But at the time, they, none of this made sense to me at all. Um, I, I definitely did not want to be a writer. Uh, that I never thought about that. In fact, I was really pretty bad at English at school. <laughs> so it never occurred to me to, to be a writer. I was always very interested though in technology and, um, and in, in, in sort of quite niche areas like aviation and aerospace. So, you know, your, your, yeah, your balloon trip today really did resonate with me. Um, but uh, so I thought, I, uh, but my, my, my horizons were pretty limited. And I thought that in order to indulge this interest in aviation and aerospace, um, I ought to become, I needed to become an engineer because that was really the only way you could get involved in that. And um, my dad actually suggested to me, he said, look, that's never gonna happen because you have a, a background in the arts. You know, you, I had this degree in Arabic and Islamic studies, as I said, I'd not trained to go into engineering. So I thought that was it. And my dad said one day, he said, look, why don't you write about it? Why don't you write about that industry? And actually, if he'd never said that, I might have done something completely different. But at that moment, it was like, a light bulb going on and I thought yeah you know I think I could probably do that and then it just became a question of hunting down the job mm -hmm. and I I elected to go into this sort of trade journalism which is what aerospace and defense kind of was uh, and I after about a year of hunting I, I got a I got a, a break and I got a job and after about three years of being an apprentice on another journal, I got this job at Jane's Defence Weekly. And Jane's was and is sort of the premier publication for the trade business of aerospace and defence. It's read by the industry, but also militaries and intelligence organisations. So it put me right into that world. And it was sort of a passport to... Uh, a phenomenal kind of quite niche world of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And uh, I very happily trundled along doing this for, I guess maybe uh, sort of five or, five or six years. And then it, I realized I was in this sort of rarefied position where I could interview 
sort of, uh, you know, near heads of government, I could interview, definitely interview secretaries of defense, you know, both in the US and the UK and elsewhere. And I thought, you know, this is an opportunity which I really shouldn't waste. So in addition to doing my day job, what can I learn here that's really going to expand my mind? And I decided that whilst going about my day job, I could investigate what I took to be or, or sort of postulated to be the biggest secret that I could possibly imagine. And the biggest secret I could imagine would be an aeros uh, sorry, a, a, a propulsion or an energy breakthrough. You know, say a defense company or say an aerospace company had developed some new form of aerospace propulsion that would make its aircraft look a lot like a UFO. Mm -hmm. That would be pretty interesting to me, I mm -hmm. thought. Also, if there had been some kind of energy breakthrough that kind of defied our understanding of physics, that would also be pretty interesting. So uh, from 1990 for about 10 years, I did that. I just, in, a, in going about my day job, particularly in America, where all the big sort of technology breakthroughs resided, I thought that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to keep my eyes open, my ears open. And I'm going to talk to people and I'm just going to see what gives. And uh, the result of that, after about 10 years of doing that, was this book called The Hunt for Zero Point, which you mentioned in the introduction, which is really my search for that propulsion and energy breakthrough. And, and, and we sort of described that typically as anti-gravity, you know, mm -hmm. had America particularly beaten the forces of nature and found a way of mastering gravity and anti-gravity. And that really is what the book is about. But actually it's much more than that because it becomes, it became for me a kind of an investigation and a walkthrough of a culture, a very secret culture that most of us don't get to experience. So, uh, and I guess I think that's probably why the book um, resonated with as many people as I'm glad it did, because it, it, it showed them that world uh, and the difference between very secret defense stuff and sort of non-secret defense stuff. You know, there really is a sort of gradation of secrecy and um, that's what it was about. And did you have uh, to have a, a special security checks and, or did you have to have special uh, permission to be able to know about all these things, to be able to write about them? Were you like, did you have to sign non-disclosure agreements or? No, so no uh, uh, because in a way that goes against the very sort of idea of, a, of an open journalistic relationship with the people you're writing about. Um, I mean, actually, that is a commonly asked question that I, I get, which is if you write for these specialist magazines and, and publications, are you forced in some way to sort of sign and you know, over here in the UK, we have the Official Secrets Act? No, I mean, uh, absolutely not, because if I had, I wouldn't be able to be objective. I couldn't have written about the things that I did. So it becomes a game between you and the people you're writing about. Obviously, they like the publicity, but they don't want you to overexpose their secret stuff. In fact, they don't want you to expose it at all. 
-hmm. So, but that's the interesting stuff for me. So we indulge in this game. I'm trying to get the really secret stuff. They don't want me to get the secret stuff, but they <laughs> like publicity. So we have to find a kind of way through that. And that's sort of how it works. And is that, because um, I've been reading The Grid and I know that I'm up to the, there's the, the part where we have Paul Smith and we're dealing with actual people whose names I know who worked with remote viewing, but we're reading a fiction book. So I'm wondering if that, I've been often told that about my own life story book that people said to me, no one's gonna believe that that was really your life story. You better write it as a fiction. So were you using that combination to be able to put in the truths of things that were really going on and then put them part as part of your story? Is that a way of sharing some of the things that are going on? Yeah, it is. But in the case of The Grid, um, that actually, the genesis of that was down to a story I, I may have told you when, you know, we were discussing other things formally, which was that when my uh, mother-in-law died, my wife was there. We were all, I mean, there were about six of us in, in, in the room when she died. My wife was holding her mum's hand. And uh, this was about seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And at the precise moment that her mum died, my wife's mother died, um, she, my wife, Ali, turned to the rest of the room and went, she's all right. She just said in this joyous voice, she's all right. Mm -hmm. Everything's okay. Everything's all right. And I thought, what? I mean, thinking, what on earth is she talking about? Her mum has just died and she's turning to the room and saying, everything's all right. Everything's okay. And I asked her, you know, obviously some time afterwards, I said, what, what was all that about? Why did you say that? And she said, well, didn't you experience it as well? And I said, experience what? Mm -hmm. And she said, I was in this place. And she said, I thought you all were, we all were, where time stopped, it was infinite, it stretched. I knew everything, everything was connected. It was imbued with this feeling of love. Uh, uh, and she said, it seemed to stretch endlessly and go on forever. I thought you were there. And I went, what is this thing that she's describing? Mm -hmm. And that was really my entry point into the sort of the consciousness thing. But, and so I started to, to read up as much as I could about it. I found out that what she'd experienced actually had a name, which is, you know, we've, most of us have heard of the near-death experience, the out-of-body experience, but what Ali encountered was something called the shared death experience which which also happens wherein loved ones of dying people or, or people who have um, died in a room or nearby or, or non-locally even experience perhaps what they are experiencing in that transition so it became endlessly fascinating to me what she'd done and I, I needed I'm a curious person I needed to go and find out what what, what, what that was all about. So the, the, the sort of the basis of that investigation led me into consciousness. I knew I couldn't write about it professionally because I'm an aerospace and defense journalist by training. What, what's an aerospace and defense journalist doing writing about consciousness? So I decided that the only thing I could really do was write about it in a fictional setting, which is why it transpired and, and turned into the grid um and since then i've been investigating it for real and that's of course how you and i met 
this is, I was wondering if you could tell our audience or listeners, why did you contact me and how did you find out about me? Okay, um, well, uh, so The Grid came out, as I said, in, uh, as a thriller, it's a thriller, it came out as uh, non-fiction in 2019, end of okay, 2019. Turner, yes. Uh, thank you. Um, and uh, then um, I was so intrigued by now, by the whole subject of consciousness. Uh, actually really rather quite a remarkable thing happened. I, 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 I really wanted to go on researching it. However, you know, I mean, we've all got to put bread on the table. I have a family and I didn't have the time to devote to researching it that I wanted to. Um, but I set myself a little sort of goal. I said, you know, I really want to meet with and work with some of the world's top consciousness researchers. Um, and I stuck that up as a goal. Uh, and little did I think that about, within about three months of doing this, that I was actually offered a grant, so a research yeah. grant to go off and do this. Wow. And is that amazing? I mean, you know. You're doing where you're supposed to be. Well, I hope so. It feels, it feels right to me. I'm having the time of my life doing it. Um, but that, uh, I, I started from basics and we can perhaps talk a, a little bit about that. But as my knowledge increased, um, this was a two year uh, grant funding study. So I had two years of, of being able to really dive into it and immerse myself in it. And uh, I guess after about a year, I'd got to this point where I thought, okay, I think I can go as far, I've gone as far as I can without really diving in. And um, I contacted our mutual friend, Dean Radin. And I said, I need to uh, speak with and tap the minds of a, uh, a medium, a, a, a shaman, uh, a remote viewer. I kind of knew the remote viewing community already through some of the work I'd already done, but a, a remote viewer, uh, a channeler, uh, a, um, a, a practitioner and a, 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 a voyager, if we can call them that, um, uh, of the DMT realms, so um, psychedelics, uh, and uh, also UFO, uh, UFO abductees. Uh, and there were one or two others as well, but I wanted to see if there were any commonalities amongst your experiences, their experiences that were sort of, that threaded through them all to tell me something extra about consciousness. And of course, Dean said, you've got to talk to shamans, talk to Gail, Gail Heisen. So um, that's how I came to you. Well, I have to say of your list, I've experienced and have experienced on every one that you mentioned, except for two of them. So I, I, I haven't really shared anything about my one UFO abductee kind of experience, but it was a very strange thing that we could talk about at another time. Uh, but all of the other things, the mediumship, the uh, all those particular modalities or whatever you want to call them, yeah, I, I've have experience in. I've, like, I'm not a specialist in one particular thing, except the one that I most have a, 
the most information and connection with would be what your wife experienced during the death of her mother. So just, you know, you can play this for her later when you see her, but let her know, yes, everything she was experiencing is was very real. And everything in connecting with her mother's passing was also very real. The rest of you just weren't awake enough at that moment to experience what was happening in the room that she was experiencing. But um, I've had that to the point where when someone is dying at a distance, my body goes through what they're doing when they're dying. So like I had one friend, very dear friend that was dying and um, he was given a morphine cocktail drink, which I didn't know about. I was traveling in Asia, but while I was in Asia, I couldn't, I, all of a sudden I couldn't breathe. And I said, oh my God, my friend is dying. And this was how he ended up, you know, his last breaths were because he wasn't able to breathe. That was the end. And another time I had a, a relative, an Uncle Willie, who was dying, and I woke up in the night and I'm throwing my guts up, projectile vomiting all over. And my husband wakes up and he says, are you sick? What's the matter? Is food poisoning? And I turned to him and I said, no, Uncle Willie just died. And about an hour later, a call came from New York. Uncle Willie had just passed away and he was throwing up his innards, you know, and that was the experience he was having in death. So I feel like sometimes some of us, maybe this is the mediumship or whatever, but this has happened throughout my life. There's something in the dying where I feel like somehow like I'm not the assistant, but I'm sort of going with them to the edge somehow. And I don't know when they're going to call, but somehow they see me and somehow there's some kind of connection, even though it's a far distant away place. And in fact, this was in the early 80s, 1984, I think, or 85, I'm not sure. Somewhere in there was when I lost my first love, my first boyfriend, and the one who was dying um, and, and had to stop breathing there. And it was my first lesson that connection knows no distance. It does not matter where we are, we can be thousands of miles away and we're still connected to that person because it's exactly the place that your wife described. There is no time. There is no, it's just a oneness and everything is, you know, there is time just sort of stops. It's a lineal thing time. You're in a place that, and I find that also when I've done remote viewings, we did this one for Stephen Schwartz, remote viewing into the future. What would 2060 look like? It was an hour and 15 minutes that I was remote viewing and all this information was coming up. I thought I'd been sitting there for five minutes. There's no time in that place. So it's something, I don't have a name for it, but wherever it is that that place is, is a wonderful place. And um, I think she was picking the right words when she said, everything's all right. Everything is, she's gone to a wonderful place. So I believe that what she experienced in my, other people might not say that, but I believe that was very real what your, what your wife and had with her mother at that moment. Also, in speaking about Dr. Dean Radin, some of our audience listeners might not know about him, but he's a scientific research um, into psychic phenomena and paranormal. And he is an amazing man on, on research and experiments. He said to me recently, he was conducting an experiment and he was trying to get the control group together. And they could not, it was so hard for him to find someone 
who had never had a psychic experience ever in their life, because that was what he was looking for, someone who'd never had one thing. And the thing that seems to be the most common that people experience is, is when they have the loss of a loved one. That's when they might have their first psychic or spiritual, whatever the word is, experience where they, it's, it's in the invisible. They don't really know what's happening, but they know they're feeling the presence of the love of someone who has just passed on. And that's often the case, but then they don't want to know anything more after that. <laughs> where you were saying, wait a minute, I need to go research this and start thinking more about what is going on with consciousness. And I think when someone like you or these scientists go investigating into this, uh, you know, uh, other realm of consciousness and paranormal, you're bringing to it a very reputable, skeptical viewing. And when you're saying, wait a minute, some of this is really needs to be researched. I think it's a fabulous, I mean, I just think it's a very wonderful thing that that's what you chose to do now in these few years. So. Well, thank you. It's, it's, it's quite an adventure, um, clearly, <laughs> as you know, but uh, it, it's very rewarding. And, and the great thing about it, you know, I feel like at long last, I've actually found a field of study uh, that is literally never ending. I mean, there are so many different facets to it. It's like every day, I feel like I'm introduced to some new knowledge, some, some sort of... Um, a, a, a new reveal in the in the sort of the the depths of um, awareness and and reality for that matter that uh, that that exist out there. You know, we we clearly only get to experience as mortal humans a very narrow slice of the reality that's out there, and I think. The exciting thing for me is that is that is increasingly being borne out through science. It, you know, long last, science and religion, or let's say spirit, mm -hmm. having gone their separate ways uh, 250 odd years ago or 300 years ago during the so-called age of reason and enlightenment, um, I think they're now coming back together again because science realizes that um, the answers are not to be held in science alone. And, and, and in probing the boundaries of the universe and reality, they need to uh, push and explore new frontiers. And, and consciousness, I think, offers that and offers that thing that, you know, pulls it all together in that holy grail they're looking for, which is a grand theory of everything. Did you get a chance to hear William Shatner's uh, uh, comments after he landed uh, and went into space for 11 minutes on the Blue Origin a couple of days ago. I did, and I was very touched by them. He was so emotional. I felt he had more to say than any astronaut or any person that had ever gone anywhere, that he really grasped that he was seeing life and death all in that same 11, you know, going from darkness into lightness. And he's 90 years old, so death has to be a thought in his mind as his possible near future. So to be able to experience what he was saying, that, you know, death and life, and I was just, I was so amazed and thinking of him being a television star of, of a space show, you know? <laughs> it's, it's wonderful, uh, you know, um, art imitating life and life imitating art and it all coming full circle and... It's brilliant, you know, th this is the, I think the era we live in where these sorts of miraculous things 
uh, do happen regularly. Um, it's great. Yes, and then isn't wasn't also in this last year, wasn't new information released finally from our American government about UFOs, things that had never actually come to surface before? Yeah, um, that's right. And it's interesting because um, in my former incarnation as a, uh, as a Jane's Defense Weekly aerospace journalist, of course, you know, I kept a weather eye on UFOs. I mean, I, you know, I often used to get rung up as the aviation editor, you know, by people who would have seen something that they couldn't rationalize or explain, you know, and would, did I know what it was? Well, it, you know, it, it, it goes to say something, I suppose, about my own journey, which was, you know, back in those days, I dismissed a lot of that stuff as just, you know, um, hokum. Um, but increasingly, and particularly when I started to research that book, The Hunt for Zero Point, which wasn't about UFOs per se, but it was about a narrow slice of the UFO phenomenon that uh, I felt I could research, which was that portion of UFO sightings that could be explained by top secret technology built, developed and built by us. That's what the book was about. But obviously it butted up against the UFO phenomenon. And I really, the book came out, The Hunt for Zero Point came out in 2001 um, I left Jane's shortly thereafter. And so I really didn't look at the UFO phenomenon at all, or not very much, until uh, I think 2017, the New York Times comes up with a story, front page news, that the US Navy had been butting up against uh, UFOs a lot. And then there were videos to show what the sightings were. There was this mysterious craft uh, sighted off the California coast called the Tic Tac, because that's what it looked like. And uh, it sort of rekindled my interest. And it rekindled my interest because for the first time, here was a professional body, one that I had had professional uh, interests and relationships with, the US Navy, uh, that was saying that this stuff was real. It, it, it was no longer something that the military was holding at arm's length and saying, no, 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 nothing to see there or here. Uh, you know, this, this stuff doesn't concern us. Well, the Navy was clearly saying, we've encountered this stuff. And then as the story unfolded, it transpired, they've been encountering it regularly, not just you know, since 2004 on the West Coast, but over off on the East Coast as well. So I thought, okay, uh, this legitimizes my reinvolvement. I can get back involved without um, having that taboo stigma, you know, attached to itself, attach itself to me professionally. Mm -hmm. So that, that was very exciting. And then, of course, a bunch of other revelations happened, culminating in the report that you mentioned, which came out uh, this last June. And that was the US government releasing in an unclassified form. So it was only short, I think it was only seven pages, the unclassified version. Uh, and a lot of people were, a lot of ufologists were unhappy with it because it didn't go as far as they would have liked. I actually thought it was a great breakthrough because here was the US government uh, saying, or, or, or actually overturning it, all of its previous positions on UFO, UFOs and saying, this phenomenon is real. We don't understand it. Um, there are many facets to it, 
and there is a very narrow sort of bucket of sightings that is inexplicable. And we're going to sort of put those on one side and maybe we'll investigate them another day. But hey, you know, that was that was enough. I mean, it, it, it's a it's a jumping off point for serious investigators to get involved, study it and really try to get to grips with what it is. It, it's clearly I mean, I've known or I felt intuitively it's been real for a long time. Of course it is. You don't get people all over the world describing essentially similar things and there being nothing in it. You know, these are, they're not, they're not, I mean, some of them might be hallucinating, but by heavens, not all of them are uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So this was a, you know, it was a great breakthrough for me, Gail. Well, I have to say the experience I had sort of terrified me. And I think I was in my late twenties when it happened and it's only from listening to these new podcast shows now that I have a podcast and I'm finding out all about podcasts and I'm a guest on all these paranormal shows and they all have aliens usually in the background of their, you know, when they're interviewing you, you see they all have aliens on the walls, on paintings, little alien statues. And I'm like, what is this with all the aliens? And then as I started to listen to some of the guests, I heard exactly like you said, a similar experience of what I'd had even though I didn't really, you know, you know, I didn't really feel like it was nothing I ever wanted to share because I thought it was too strange a thing and I couldn't tell whether I was in a dream world or what had really happened. I'll share it with you in this minute. I'm laying in my bed here in the house I've been in for 40 years. And I think I'm dreaming, but it doesn't really feel like I'm dreaming. And and, and I'm not saying any of this is real as I share this. I'm just sharing this as a story because I don't, I, after it happened, I said, I never want to know anything about UFOs ever again. <laughs> and it was because I had thought with somebody, oh, well, you know, what about UFOs? And what about aliens? I thought, ah, you know, so as soon as I put my mind out, I'm a very big manifester. So if I put out that thought, then all of a sudden something comes back. So I felt like my body was taken up and lifted, even though my body was still in the bed. I felt like I was transported up and I don't watch science fiction, but I have to say years later in seeing my son or someone else watching it and me seeing some little scenes. And when I'd see the scene, I said, oh my God, that looks like the place I was taken to. Whereas I put into these little like pod like things, like I was in, there was like a big wall and there was these things and it wasn't sensual, but I felt like something sexual was happening to me at the time that this was going on. And the way that it looked was these long, these kind of stretched out gray people with the, with the, with the head and those almond eyes. And, you know, I'm in my 60s, I'm 66 now. So when I'm telling you this happened to me in my late 20s, this is a long time ago. And since then, I've seen those kind of images come out in so many places and on all those people who interview me shows, they look like that. So I started hearing this information from people who are very involved in this. Oh yes, don't you know about the greys? That's called the greys. You know, I said, no, I didn't know about the greys. And they have a whole story about all this and about how many people experience this sexual abduction thing. And I'm thinking to myself, so I don't know what to think about it, except that I'm hearing it now. I'm not scared like I was in my twenties when I had the experience. So I'm willing to talk about it now, or even just here. And so when you hear the other things, you start to think, is this one of those things where just people had a common dream together? Or did people all around actually experience this on different levels? 
I don't know. So I don't know if you heard of any stories like that in your... Well, I think that the, the next phase of the public's kind of interaction with the UFO phenomenon, I mean, the, 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 the big reveal in the last few years is, as I said, it's really been about the craft. You know, it's about the, the, the nuts and bolts phenomenon of, of UFOs. Um, I, like you, I think, believe it is a much more complicated phenomenon than that. It is, it is not a single point phenomenon, nor is it a nuts and bolts phenomenon exclusively. Um, I, I, I think that it is intimately bound up in and with consciousness. Uh, uh, and I think the next stage of that journey for everyone, including, I might add, the powers that be, is that once they acknowledge that the craft are real, the next step is to go, well, who or what is operating them or who or what is responsible for them? And is, are we seeing them and encountering them because we are experiencing some form of slip or shift in reality, in, in the way we experience reality? Um, that I think is, is sort of, you know, that's the next frontier. And, uh, but we have to acclimatize to begin with to the first thing, which is, oh, the craft are real. Then we've got to, you know, really get to grips with um, who or what is behind them. And I think that we'll find, you know, I'm a great admirer of a guy uh, called Jacques Vallée, yes. who you may have come across, yes. whose books I've read, um, and I think is really, I mean, from a very early point in, in, in the story of ufology was, was saying some very interesting things about the phenomenon, you know, how it is all tied into other aspects of consciousness, other aspects of our sort of folkloric past. There is a sort of shamanic quality to uh, the experience for, for many people. And um, so I think when the world's ready for that, they will, they will journey to that place. And I think then the answers uh, will begin to emerge. I mean, they'll never be complete. As I said, I think one of the facets of the phenomenon is that it's always one step ahead of us. Um, and, and quite rightly, there is a sort of, uh, I think there's, there's, there's that teasing sort of beguiling aspect to it, which is meant to, I don't know what you feel, Gail, I'd be very interested to hear, it is meant to pull us into some new version of ourselves, um, a new version of our, uh, our conscious selves. So, uh, and UFOs seem to have that quality about them. Do, do you agree? Well, you know, when I was living in a vegan commune in 1962, we were living with the president of the vegans, Jay Dinshaw. We would have guests that would come and speak from all over the world. And I'm only six and seven years old at the time, but I never forgot this couple that came, Bill and Dottie Haley. I mean, I don't even forget their names because they became friends of my parents for many, many years until they passed away. But as a kid, I remember going over to their house and him taking out and showing us photos and saying, yes, this is the spaceship that landed and this is who I went off with. So I was hearing this kind of stuff from a person saying I was taken away in a ship. And I just, as a child, I just thought, well, I, I never forgot the image 
of the photo he showed me of this flying sorcery type vehicle that he told me that he had gone off in and had been brought back home in. And that was just a little seed that was planted, but it was something that as a kid, you never forgot that picture or that man telling you that in 1962. And I've had no interest in UFOs or any of these things. It's just that of late, I'm hearing so many information and stories. And when I heard stories that were so similar to mine, I was just like, wait a minute, how could everybody be getting the same kind of experience or story? And also the same feeling like I had, which was, I was, I was in fear then. I wasn't feeling like, oh great, I'm having a great new experience. That wasn't it for me. I was like sort of terrified what just happened. This doesn't feel like a dream. So, and there was nobody back then, you know, in the eighties that I would really be able to call and talk to about that kind of thing. So I just preferred to bury it and not ever bring it up again. And it's only recently that I've actually been talking about it because of these different shows that I've been hearing all these amazing stories from other people. So I figured, well, I should tell them my little, <laughs> my little experience, um, which makes me think about someone that you've worked with for years that I thought we should talk about which is the wonderful Ingo Swan. And I don't know, all our viewers would not necessarily know who Ingo Swan is. So I was wondering if you might be able to tell them a little about him. And uh, of course his paintings were of the, the planets, the cosmos, and he was someone who remote viewed to other places. And in fact, maybe you could tell them about the Jupiter and the rings and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I, I was only looking, we recently moved house, so um, we're in slight disarray here, but uh, I was looking around to see if I could find my painting by Ingo, which was given to me by his family, because um, uh, when Ingo died, which he did uh, in 2013, um, there was a sort of a gap of a few years, and then I was approached by his family to ask whether I would be interested in uh, writing his sort of definitive story. Uh, Ingo wrote a lot about himself and the subjects that interested him and a lot of other people have too. Um, so we actually decided in the end that there was uh, not much point in my sort of adding to that canon of work because it had already been, already been pretty well explored. But um, uh, so instead, Fortunately, along the way, while we were doing the research, we found two manuscripts that Ingo had written um, and which had obviously had never been published. Now, I, I should go back because I met a new Ingo, as I know you, well, you met him as well. And, and I think you knew him, didn't you, Gail, quite, yes. quite well. Um, times, yes. We had a so good connection. <laughs> I... Uh, I met him uh, because he, when I, when The Hunt for Zero Point, uh, the book about anti-gravity, when that came out, it was an amazing calling card for me in many ways, because people got in touch with me, I would never normally have got in touch with or, or hoped, ever hoped to meet. Uh, and one of them was Ingo. And he contacted me and said, do you ever come to New York? I've just read the book. I'd really like to talk to you about the research. So I think within a year, I'd gone over to New York and I met him, we uh, had a chat, very interesting, very, it was a really interesting experience meeting him for the first time in that amazing house of his, which yes. uh, I think you uh, had also yes, visited. I was only in the basement. I don't know what was up on the second and third floor. 
Well, to begin with that, that, that first meeting, I, I only got as far as the basement as well, but then about, uh, that was in 2002, uh, then about seven years later, um, I, I went back to New York and actually with uh, a, a film crew, we, were, we started to film um, uh, Ingo's life in a sort of documentary form, which is ultimately how I got the kind of the, the book writing gig from his family. And um, anyway, uh, so the manuscript, those two lost manuscripts were published last year in one volume they're called, uh, it's called Resurrecting the Mysterious. Um, they're Ingo's books. I've, I've written a sort of a, a preface and a, a sort of epilogue. Um, and they were, to me, fascinating. I mean, this, this to me was Ingo Swan, uh, who was um, the four, was really the sort of, like the, I guess, the godfather of the remote viewing program. I've heard um, it be called the, the father of remote viewing. Or even, uh, perhaps right. I should call him the father <laughs> of remote viewing. It's sort of hard because, you know, Hal Putoff and Russell Targ, um, I don't know what they were then, but I kind of think of them as the fathers of remote viewing, but Ingo was certainly up there too. They probably, all three of them were. Um, and uh, so he, uh, for those who don't know about the remote viewing program, it started in 1972, I think. Um, it uh, was run out of the Stanford Research Institute uh, just outside of San Francisco. Um, it was backed by uh, intelligence funding, uh, predominantly the CIA, but also the Defense Intelligence Agency. And uh, it was a, uh, a, 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 a protocol-driven method for um, uh, psychic spying in, in, in essence. It was uh, remotely surveilling uh, targets. And of course, back in the Cold War, which that was, that meant mainly spying on the Soviet Union and bringing that knowledge back. Um, and it was, uh, it was hit and miss, of course. I mean, it's not a precise science, but it was, uh, to my mind anyway, um, phenomenally successful even though at the end of it all, it was sort of um, downplayed by the CIA. I, I, I'm sure because it worked all too well. Um, In fact, so, anyone listening right now, uh, yet today is Thursday. Yesterday, I just released on a small, medium at large podcast with Gail Heisen, an hour and a half interview with Russell Targ sharing all of this information about the CIA and getting everything declassified and what went on in the military is fascinating information. And some of our listeners don't know who Ingo Swan is, but he really was giving them the, the, the graph or the tools to begin their remote viewing project because he told them, he taught them how to do remote viewing. Um, yes, that's absolutely right. Father, right. Yeah, he, he, he came up with this protocol called coordinate remote viewing, which was really about, um, you know, you, as the name suggests, uh, a taskmaster would give the remote viewer the coordinates of uh, uh, something that they wanted information brought back on. And um, Ingo devised that protocol. Uh, and yes, it was actually an idea that he got, funnily enough, from Jacques Vallée, who was working down the corridor uh, in another part of SRI. 
but um so yeah it was uh he was uh, a remarkable person i'm very glad that i had the opportunity to know him and even gladder that that his family um gave me this opportunity to to work on this uh, manuscript of his which was a, an enormous privilege I have to credit him because I didn't remember this till you started calling me and interviewing me about shamanism, that he was the first person to tell me that I was a shaman and didn't know how to be a shaman and didn't know how to act like a shaman. And I left his house going, what is he talking about? I'm not a shaman, what kind of shaman? And who knows, like, you know, 12 years later, I get initiated as a shaman. I end up being involved with the shamanism conference. I ended up meeting shamans from all over the world. Wherever he is, I hope you can hear. Thank you. You were right. You were telling me some precognitive information. You know, he was an, a very, very incredible guy. And I, I'm just thrilled I got to meet. It was towards the end of his life, but I was really happy to have that experience and connection with him. As I know, he's, I'm thinking it kind of coincides with your wife and the book. I feel like um, he came to you the year before you realized you were going to start studying consciousness. So he was like your, yeah. your, your like opening because of your book, which led, led him to, to contact you. So that's really fast. That's really fascinating. There's, there's one story about him. I think you must know. I was wondering if you could share, which was when he was asked, he, I think the story goes something like he was bored with just doing pictures and things. And he decided, why can't we do something else? And scientifically it came out what he said. So I was wondering if you could share that about the planet. Sure. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right, Gail. He um, he could be quite testy. In, oh in yes. Sure you remember. Prima uh, donna. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and he he sort of you know when he felt that he was being treated a little bit like a sort of a lab rabbit, he would protest, and he was getting a bit fed up. It was slightly fed up with doing all of this sort of. It was called outbound remote viewing which involved somebody going out viewing stuff and then Inga picking up the psychic signals from the outbounder. Um, so he said, look, I'm getting bored of this, I think to uh, Russell and, and Hal. And he said, I'm getting bored with this. Uh, I need to do something different. And uh, he was about to, I think, rebel, not for the first time and walk off the program. So they said, okay, well, what do you want to do? So he said, well, I want to remote view something way out there. So how about some planets? So they said, okay, and they got some um, other remote viewers uh, involved uh, in that activity. I think they remote viewed Mercury. They definitely remote viewed Mars. Um, and in going out to Jupiter, uh, Ingo surprised everyone by saying, I see rings around this planet. And everyone said, well, that, you must have ended up at the wrong place, Ingo. That's the next planet along, it's Saturn. And he went, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm at Jupiter and there are rings around it. And this was, I think in 1975, so quite some time before those planets have been surveyed in the way they are today or have been by NASA spacecraft. Anyway, within quite a short period of time, I think about nine months, a NASA spacecraft uh, was on a flyby of Jupiter and lo and behold, it saw rings around Jupiter. So uh, Ingo was absolutely right. And that's, uh, that's well documented. So it's, it's true. It's true. And it's, it's skeptics should be able to take a look at that and say, wait a minute. 
he's really saying something. I mean, this is all documented. This is all true. It's science who's saying the rings are there, not some space case person. And um, and Ingo, that's 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 what I admired about his, you know, his confidence in saying, no, you're telling me there's no rings there, but I'm telling you there is. And he was right. So I I just I just think it's an amazing validation and to be able to be that sure of something without being told it true. Was he alive when the information came out? Did he ever get to, to know that? Oh yeah, it, 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 the feedback came within, I think about nine months. So oh. he, would, he, he got that feedback early. Yeah. Great. Well, we're getting on to our hour here, but I wanted to go with one last question and however long it takes, you know, we have time, we have no worry. Um, I wanted to talk about, where was that? Here it is. You're not only a writer and a storyteller, but you're looking to find solutions to global challenges like food, water, climate change. In fact, one of the people I interviewed on my upcoming shows that'll be coming up, uh, Randy Zanisis, he did remote viewing for water in Kenya but he stays here in Oklahoma and he reads a grid. And on this grid, he tells them in Kenya exactly where to drill for water. And they think he's crazy because it's dr drilling through rock bed that they said nobody can ever get through this. There can't be any water there. The three or five, I think it was five, the five holes in places that he selected for them to drill all found water, which supplied these villages in Kenya with incredible amount of water that they had not had. And this to me is a, the most useful thing of remote viewing I'd ever heard of. And that um, they offered him the chief's two daughters and a goat as a thank you. <laughs> and he said, no, my wife wouldn't like if I brought it, you know, had an extra wife come back <laughs> and the goat you'll have to give to someone else. But this leads me to the question that you're asking, which is, so what are you doing here with this? This sounded fascinating that you're working on projects that have to do with our global challenges now. So if we could finish on that topic and talk as long as you need to, that would be a wonderful thing to share with our listeners. Well, well, thank you. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's got some strange origins actually. Um, so in addition to, uh, to, to my day job, which was journalism at the time, um, uh, as you said, I, I write, I'm a writer. I've written a number of uh, different kinds of books, fiction, nonfiction, and I also ghostwrite. So I've ghostwritten for other people. And it just happened, I was working on a big ghostwritten project. It, it was a high pressure project, um, challenging because the person whose voice I was trying to find uh, was from a very different culture to me. And, and it was, not the normal kind of ghostwritten project. Anyway, I, I had what I never had before, which was writer's block. I got really bad writer's block. And all I could hear was this clock ticking, which, which was saying, you know, you've got six weeks now to deliver this book and five weeks, four weeks, you know, and I couldn't break the writer's block. So I, I, I put out there a, a plea. I, uh, I, I, I'm not particularly religious. Um, I'm, I guess I'm spiritual, but I said, if there's anyone out there and if you're listening to me, if you help me break this writer's block, I will do whatever you want me to do 
in the future that you know I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know what it is, but you know. So this was the bargain I, I struck. It was a little bit like the classic fairy story, you know, where the, the king or whatever makes some deal with, I don't know, a frog or something about <laughs> the princess. And anyway, the writer's block went within a few days and I completely forgot about my promise. And like all good fairy stories, nine months later, I'm actually in the shower and this I get this download. It's like uh, the download forms in a nanosecond, but it's so completely formed. It's, well, Nick, you know the aerospace and defense industry. You've written about them all your life. You have contacts that go all the way from the ground up, right the way up to you know the senior echelons of these large companies. Uh, so you have, why don't you go and talk to them about uh, diverting their considerable technology base from pure defense into solving global challenges like climate change, which they're well able to do, because if you think about it, they build stuff that goes out into space all the way down through the atmosphere and down into the sea and subsea. So they know about the planet. So why aren't they doing more to, to save the planet? And I said in the shower, go away. That is impossible. That I'm never gonna be able to do that. No one's ever had this idea. That's ridiculous, no. But a promise is a promise. So I thought, okay, I've got to go and do this thing. So um, I, I started in the only way I knew how, which was to hold meetings of people that I knew. And uh, I did, I invited, people from the industry to come and talk about this stuff. And it's pretty counterintuitive. You know, this is the defense industry, uh, known more for making things go bang, um, coming together to produce solutions to some of these really huge intractable planetary challenges, not just climate change, but things like food security, water security, you know, how we feed and, 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 and get water to people in remote areas, um, uh, solving overcrowded city problems. You know, all of those are buried skill sets within the aerospace and defense industry. In 2011, I got all the chief technology officers of the, of the eight, eight of the nine big aerospace and defense prime contractors. Companies like Boeing and Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and, got them together in Washington DC with uh, President Obama's science advisor, Dr. John Holdren and the Secretary of the Navy, Ray Mabus. And we talked about it and they all said, yeah, we can do that. We can, we can save the planet. And I went, whoa, this is amazing. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, and so I thought, uh, and, and the problem though is, and the reason why we don't see them doing it is because they are directed to do things by government. Governments are the only customer really that these entities have. And if governments don't say, go do it, these companies don't. Mm -hmm. So we spent some years even trying to square that circle and we got some way, but then unfortunately in 2014, ISIS pops up, the Russians go annex Crimea, there's a sort of collective look across the industry again, which was, well, that was fun, Nick, but it's kind of back to business as usual. Mm. So uh, 
I was sort of slightly disillusioned about all of that, um, obviously. And that's when actually I then went off and I wrote The Grid. So, you know, other things sort of happened. But um, I'm glad to say that it's all sort of starting to resurface again. And as the pressing challenges of the planet are, they don't go away. And, and probably, you know, as we all know, they're more manifest. I mean, you've, you poor guys have had terrible, um, you know, fires in California and, you know, that's all because of rising temperatures. So we have to do something and the aerospace and defense sector is probably the only one on the planet that has that breadth of capability that can do this. So um, it's gonna happen um, and, you know, we're, we're talking again. So uh, watch this space. I'm just, I'm just so blown away by the things that you've done and that the things that you're doing, and that's an amazing, area to be going into. I, I, we were talking, you were talking us all about, about sustainability and creating cities that would be more uh, built towards sustainability. And this, this is also part of that same project, correct? Yeah, absolutely. It's about, you know, about resilience as well. You know, uh, cities are getting bigger by the day and their systems which aren't unlike the systems that you get, say, on an aircraft. You know, all of these things have to work together. Transportation, uh, wastewater, um, water, food supplies. You know, they all have to work like systems. And, and the aerospace and defense industry is very good at doing that stuff. And, and uh, obviously working with other sectors, I mean, not doing it on their own, but using their sort of knowledge of systems to bring it all together. So uh, I'm hopeful and confident even that it's going to happen. And lastly, this is a fabulous, I'm so happy that you're sharing this with the listeners because it makes you feel like there's hope and that there is a place to go to. Um, can you tell us about your next upcoming book that you're working on that has to do with consciousness? Unless it's a secret. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's not. Well, actually, it, it's a sequel to The Grid. Um, so, uh, yes, I, I'm, 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 I'm working on that because, uh, well, I'm not going to spoil, your, you haven't finished it, so I'm not going to spoil the ending of The Grid, but it, it, it leads into some other areas that all touch on the whole consciousness realm. Actually, much more, Gail, funnily enough, in your realm than the previous did. So there is a sort of shamanistic kind of aspect to the sequel, which I'm really excited by, and 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 bringing that to a sort of uh, a, a wider audience in a fictional setting is it has been a lot of fun for me thus far. So um, that's what I'm that's what I'm involved in. Have you come up with a title yet, or? I've got, a, I've got a few, um, but it's, I, I'm, I'm not, it's not complete yet. So um, I'm, I'm sort of uh, hanging fire until the book's finished and then I'll, I'll decide on which of the three titles I think I've got out there. Uh, it's gonna the, be. The, I'm looking forward to that, very exciting. So uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today about anything that we've discussed or anything you want them to know? Uh, we will have your book on our description, so they will know where they can click to go to Amazon to purchase any of your books. If you want, we can put your web website on the description also. Um, 
let's see. I don't know what else you might, if there's anything else you want to share with them, they'll know how to find out about you through the website. Well, thank you for having me on the show. I've really enjoyed it. I've, you know, in the, how long have we known each other? A year almost? Um, yes, a COVID relationship. <laughs> yes. Uh, it, I, I've, I've just so enjoyed our conversations. And thank you for introducing me to your world, which has just been f fascinating and continues to be fascinating to the degree that I'm even now writing about it in a fictional sense. So, um uh no i'm just you know i think we live in challenging times obviously but they're exciting as well I, I and i do feel that we are you know ingo was very uh sure that we would undergo a consciousness shift um you know perhaps a little bit after his lifetime and i do feel that whilst you know there are obviously there are many challenging aspects of the world that we live in at the moment there are many hopeful signs as well and I'm a more hopeful, much more hopeful person than a downbeat one. So I like to think that uh, through the, 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 the sort of the, the loosening of our kind of concept of, of what reality traditionally is, which is a very hard and fast 3D interpretation mm. of our world, actually, uh, we are beginning to embrace the idea that there are depth realms to existence, which um, I think are informing all kinds of things. You know, we've talked about science briefly, but I think they're also sort of informing us and, and, and uh, loosening the sort of the, 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 the sort of strictures of our bonds, I don't know, but, but making us think more widely about human existence, human nature and the world that we live in. So I, I find that part of life exciting. Yeah, I always feel there's a silver lining in every, every cloud. And I'm like you, I like to always, and I feel like that's how I've lived through this unconventional life and childhood and things and whatever's have happened is at the end, I always take a good laugh at it all because it's very important to not take everything so seriously and to remember your joy and to remember to keep dancing and singing and laughing and engaging and being with other people. And, oh, yeah. uh, and I, consciousness I feel that has a sense of humor as well. I mean, it really does. I mean, you know, the best, we all say, you know, the best laid plans. Well, my best laid plans have, have so often been um, uh, waylaid by some very sort of, uh, it's like the universe is kind of winking at me and going, uh-uh, that's not what we had in mind at all. And a lot of that is, I mean, some of it's very serious clearly, but a lot of it is really quite funny. It's like, you think you're in charge? No, you're not. And, and we're gonna show you why. <laughs> My grandmother used to say it in Yiddish and I can't speak the Yiddish like she did, but it was something like, Mensch trach and God laugh, but it was you know men plan and God laughs, and it's a, it's a saying you hear through all different cultures, and it's because it's true. <laughs> exactly. So Nick, I want to thank you for first you know coming and interviewing me, and I'm happy to speak with you again on anything else in shamanism you'd like to know about or any of the other things that you mentioned, and I feel like this is just the beginning of our, our, our friendship. And I'm just, just so thrilled that you had the time to come and be on our show because I know you moved recently from the city to the countryside. 
and in moving that takes a lot of stuff and so I'm just so happy you found the time and I just hope you enjoyed being here today as much as I enjoyed having you so thank I you so much I did, I did indeed Gail thank you so much and we'll we'll no doubt we'll talk soon thank you very much okay thank you take care so so listeners we want to thank Nick Cook for being with us here today and we want to remind you Go to YouTube, go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all the different uh, podcast things you can come to, and we'll be there. If you type in a small, medium at large.co, you will be at our website, which will take you to all these different shows. And this upcoming show will be coming up in the future. So we'll be looking forward to having you and all the other guests that we have. So thanks so much for being here. And again, subscribe to our channel. We want to get more listeners. Have a great day and enjoy. Have a wonderful time. And remember, stories can heal. Thank you. Bye.